Hello, you're listening to A Little Bit of Largum, a podcast exploring how to find a more balanced, sustainable and mindful approach to living, to support your well-being, the well-being of others and of the planet too. My name is Marla and in today's episode I had the absolute joy of speaking with Farah Ahmed, who works for Julie's Bicycle, a London-based charity that supports the creative community to act on climate change and environmental sustainability. Farah's interests lie in exploring connections between environmental, racial and social justice, creative activism and how art can reshape climate narratives. She is also a co-founder and facilitator of Diaspora Dialogues for Our Futures, a reflective space for people of colour to centre collective care in the face of the climate crisis. In this conversation, Farah shares her journey into her work at Julie's Bicycle, and how this influenced the way she connected to the environmental movement, as well as the important role that art has to contribute to this space. We discussed the need for systemic change to tackle social injustices and the damaging impact of an individualistic focus within the environmental movement. Farah shares crucial messages surrounding the need to be centering marginalized voices and opening up spaces to listen to those on the front lines of the climate crisis as well as looking beyond the symptoms to target and address the root causes of the climate crisis. She also highlights the importance of dismantling gatekeeping and all oppressive systems, and she shares such beautiful messages of what she's hopeful about for the future. I really hope that you enjoy this episode. I thought it'd be really great if first we can just hear a little bit about you, um, what you're passionate about, the work that you do and how you came into working for Julie's Bicycle would be super awesome to hear. Yeah, so um, I started working at Julie's Bicycle, I think about four and a half years ago. And to be honest, it was completely an accident. I spent a summer sort of like sitting around in my garden a bit lost (laughs) And, and I got um a sort of admin job here and I I realized how much of it did make sense to me and also how much didn't make sense to me now I've always been really politically active I've always been really engaged but the the sort of language of the environmental movement wasn't something that I felt like was the way that I understood the environment so a lot of my work since then has been about uh, creating space for people of colour, people who um, are not uh, not often recognised in these spaces or not often participating in these spaces to, uh, to feel able to lead, to feel confident in having those conversations and also for it to, to make sense um, in the way that we need it to make sense, you know, to relate to our communities if we're people who are diaspora of, of of other places that are really impacted you know to to talk about it in those kinds of ways as well incredible yeah I think it's so important that those um interconnections are made as well between um systemic oppression and the environmental injustices social injustices and environmental injustices are so interlinked and yeah making those connections is so important and I'd love to hear a little bit more about the work that Julie's Bicycle does and what you hope to achieve through working with them. Yeah, so um, at Julie's Bicycle, we work 
very specifically with the arts and culture sector. Um, and the idea is, you know, that uh, we change culture and culture then changes the world. Um, you know, and it's about translating um, the science and the policy and everything um, into, into creative um, sector organisations. And we do that in a sort of number of ways. Uh, so we offer consultancy and we, um, we offer training programs. It's, um, it's a really holistic uh, approach. And uh, yeah, and part of the work that I'm doing at Julie's Bicycle is, um, is around embedding uh, climate justice into those conversations. So it's, it's not just about sustainability in terms of carbon footprints, but what goes on beyond that um, and what it means for organisations to really think about uh, the systemic nature of climate injustice and how our operations and productions and supply chains reflect that, but also then how our communication and our production um, and our sort of uh, our, our art itself reflects that. Yeah, I think that's so important. Like something that I've been thinking about a lot at the moment is how, because I've always been really passionate about environmental sustainability and the more I learn about social injustices, it's all about trying to bridge bridge those connections. And there's always that conflict as well of them being, I trained as a dance artist and then almost feeling like, do I have a place that I can be within the climate movement? And actually recognising that no matter what industry you are in, there's an importance of bringing bringing those qualities and having that advocacy within whatever industry you're working in. So yeah, mm. I think that's it. I think especially for artists and and people who aren't scientists, you know, it feels really difficult to to know where you sit and to know if you're saying the right thing or doing the right thing. I'm not a scientist. I my brain does not work in that way, but you know, we have to create the capacity to for one another to be able to speak on those things. It doesn't it doesn't require that you you know read every single UN report on climate change because you'll spend all your time sitting in front of the screen instead of doing the work. <laughs> but you know, um, we have to keep uh, keep connected. We have to keep listening to the people who are at the front lines of all of that as well. And we have to find ways of translating all of that. Yeah, and I think art can be such a powerful way to do that. And I want to pick up on what you were saying before as well about it's not just carbon footprint. And I think quite often we can hear so much like these arbitrary numbers and something that the arts can do really well is bringing that sort of human element um, and sort of resonating on a more emotional level, which we can all relate to, I think, more than numbers sometimes, at least that's how I feel. Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, also numbers are obscure a lot. Um, you know, when we talk about a carbon footprint, and this is um, something that I, I heard an academic friend of mine talk about recently, you know, the carbon footprint for someone who's cooking and using that for subsistence farming versus uh, somebody who's using uh, a private jet to fly off somewhere is, you know, it'll be the same thing and that number will tell the same story. But what you need to, to understand is all the values behind that and the humanity behind it. Yeah. Can I just 
close my door properly because I can hear my housemate. <laughs> Sorry about that. No problem at all. Yeah, no, I really resonate with what you're saying. And yeah, it it's just, it's my train of thought has now just vanished. It's <laughs> <laughs> problematic. What was I going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say like, there's so much more nuance and complexity behind that that you don't get through the numbers so yeah having the ability to to draw upon those nuances and like you were saying take time to listen to those on the front lines experiencing the brunt of the climate crisis and um social injustices and to just actually listen to those voices is so important Mm. so i wanted to go on and ask what it was for you that fueled you to start engaging with climate justice and the need for systemic change I think in a really formal sense, it was starting at Julie's Bicycle and and seeing how all of that made sense there. I'm not from an environmental background at all. But um, what I was thinking about as as all of this this stuff started to fall into place for me was like, I stopped eating meat um, when I was like 19. And um, the big reason behind that was because of the resource disparity um, in 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 the production of meat and I had when I was 18 went to visit family in Kashmir and saw you know and you see um, firsthand you know that the the very very stark differences um, in how people live and you know not that that's not also something that happens in the UK but um, you know I was lucky enough to while we didn't have an awful lot we always ate and sort of thinking about that, that resource disparity, you know, prompted me to stop eating meat. But I didn't really think about it as like some climate action, you know, until I started to connect it all much more with um, with that social injustice, with poverty, with all of the other things that surround it. You know, it's not my individual decision to stop eating meat. It's about food insecurity. And, and that's those are the conversations that I think we need to start having much more, you know, um, just because I'm a vegetarian doesn't mean that I'm, I'm like a sweet climate angel. <laughs> and, uh, and nor should we be sort of framing conversations in that way. We have to look at it from a bigger picture. Yeah, I completely agree with that because in so many things, it's situation, location dependent and what could be a more sustainable option in one situation it won't be somewhere else and mm. it's actually recognizing that rather than having like a blanket statement of like this is the the solution that everyone should be following the world doesn't work like that mm. um, and yeah I and sort of the other thing was that I I I used to work in the fashion industry and honestly I hated it <laughs> I you know I'm a I'm an artist myself and I come from a, that design background but sort of you know coming from a perspective of wanting to change it wanting it to be more equitable to be more sustainable to be to be better but at the same time sort of you know and this was god 10-15 years ago I was just sort of coming up against the fact that I am not from money I couldn't afford 30 pounds for an organic t-shirt um you know I grew up in in a sort of house where my mum would buy fabric from the market which was absolutely 100% not organic sustainable fabric and she would make our clothes you know um we didn't have that luxury and it 
and that's also part of the reason why I, I stare away from, from talking about climate action as like individual choices, because I didn't grow up with that luxury. And, um, and it is a luxury. And it doesn't mean that I and people like me and the people who had less than me are, um, are worse people because of it. And we have this um, sort of dichotomy sometimes of like good uh, and evil in, in the climate movement. But it's not that people who can't do the, the good things are inherently evil. It's that we're in a system which doesn't allow for that to happen. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's like there's such a tendency for organisations to want to or kind of like big companies to want to place the blame on consumers or make consumers feel like it's their responsibility to fix everything. But we all have fluctuating levels of privilege and access and having companies put pressure on individuals to feel like they have to take responsibility and make these changes we're living in a system built upon oppression and inequalities. So if we, if we aren't in a position where everyone can make those changes, so it's almost like creating infighting within individuals, if that makes sense, because it's, it's making everyone feel like it's our responsibility to change it all whilst there's companies with the capacity to, to make things better and make things more just for everyone, but they're just choosing not to. It's a very frustrating thing. Yeah, I think um, I think yeah that 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 um, focus on individual consumption. It's very much sort of looking at the symptoms, right? You know, if we uh, are hounding people for using plastic packaging, um, which of course, whenever we are able to to make that choice, we should stop using that. Um, but when people can't, when people are living in food deserts, when um, there's, you know, we're in a, a, a pandemic and there's lots of additional plastic packaging that's floating around. And, and the question isn't why are you using it? The question is, where's the innovation? Like, where's the funding going towards changing that? Where is this plastic coming from? And you have to trace it back through that supply chain to the fact that it's coming from oil, which is being extracted from stolen land. And and then governments are pouring money back into those fossil fuel companies or granting more permits. And, you know, that's the conversation that, that, that we should be having about plastic, not shaming and pointing the finger at people. Definitely. Something I think that's a, a really important thing to talk about, although there is such a need for systemic change, individuals in a position of privilege have a responsibility to help create a more just society so for people who maybe feel overwhelmed with how how much influence huge companies have that are clearly not making the changes that need to be seen how can individuals have an impact on the systemic changes that need to happen I think that if you're in the position to pass the mic then pass the mic funnel resources into frontline communities, into grassroots collectives. Um, if you have uh, a knowledge or a skill set which is useful uh, or which is um, uh, particularly niche, open that out, you know, create the capacity for other people to, to engage in that way. But also I think that check your ego because a lot of the time those communities have those skills um, and have those knowledges but it's been 
taken away or it's been made difficult to access, right? But when we look at globally, you know, indigenous peoples make up like less than five percent of the global population, but 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 protect eighty percent of the of the biodiversity. But then what you see sometimes um, is like Western led NGOs, you know, saying we need to conserve this area of land in this country, which is currently stewarded by indigenous people. And so therefore we're going to displace the people because it's people that are the issue. And we're going to sort of insert our idea of what conservation is here. And we need to stop that way of thinking. We need to stop um, sort of uh, implementing these very sort of Western, very very individualist way of ways of, of looking at things and acknowledge the the people who have been made invisible, the people who are on the front line defending all of those things are the ones who should be leading that and should be telling us what needs to happen. Yeah, definitely. And that really makes me think of a lot of schemes that have been put in place regarding like carbon offsetting and this idea of like land grabbing and then actually what was being done on that land was so much more sustainable to then kind of deforest it, destroy all the biodiversity, move people who were sustaining that land to then just grow a monoculture of trees. It's Mm -hmm. just... I think the problem is also is that a lot of this stuff is um it's very hard to get to the reality of what is happening it's not transparent at all um like supply chains need to be made more transparent um we need a better understanding of what is happening at all levels um of this and you know carbon offsetting julie's bicycle is releasing something on carbon offsetting soon and you're absolutely right you know uh there is this sort of attitude sometimes that we can just we can just plant some trees but actually we need to you know there's a reason why it's reduce reuse recycle you start with the reduction right and um you know particularly in the UK in Europe in North America we consume so much that we really have to start there it's like that analogy of like if a, a bath or something is overflowing it's the the situation between just like putting a towel on the floor or turning off the tap and it's like Mm -hmm. we really need to be focusing on turning off the tap rather than just like trying to clean up the mess that we're continuing continuing to to make um yeah um but I'd love to go back to talk a little bit more about Julie's bicycle and maybe some of the highlights that you've had along the time that you've been working there any kind of perspective shifts what you guys are getting up to at the moment yeah I'd love to hear a little bit more of that yeah um so julie's bicycle has been around for 14 years and primarily started working with the music industry and that's been a a sort of continuing uh thread of of work um but we um open it out and we work right across the whole sector so one of the biggest sort of programs that we run is with the arts council england so as part of that what we do is um every year uh, their national portfolio organisations, um, so the people who get regular funding um, with the Arts Council, uh, submit all of their carbon data to us. And what we're looking at more and more is not just like the numbers, as we said, but but what surrounds that, like um, how uh, motivated staff feel by seeing climate action in the organisation, um, what it means to audiences, and the 
the opportunities that opens up for collaboration. And as well within that is we're, we're working with the highest emitters. So it's a group of like 60 of the highest emitters in the portfolio to like really do the, the big reductions. And um, one of my personal highlights to have come out of that is um, work. It's called The Colour Green. So it's all about climate justice and um, opening up the space to marginalised voices um, within that. So it began as a podcast, um, which really was about exploring the relationship between race and nature and climate change. And it's opened up now to uh, a huge sort of uh, programme, which I'm really excited about. So there's um, training for people of colour in the arts sector to to get to grips with climate change and climate justice and the science and the policy and everything around that. Um, it's doing many, like many more events. Um, so we've got one coming up in a few weeks, which is a sort of live conversation with um, some artists and, and uh, policymakers. And that's, uh, I can send you the details for that. Yes, um, please do. <laughs> And coming soon, we um, so it might be out by the time this comes out. Um, is we'll have a, a, a sort of resource hub for the arts, um, all about climate justice. Um, and yeah, and then we do lots alongside that. Um, we do cre- uh, something called Creative Climate Leadership, which is a sort of training program which we run internationally as well. We do consultancy work with organisations. We um, do a lot of work with policymakers on making sure that culture really sits at the heart of policymaking as well. So it's it's really um, a really broad approach. Yeah, I just think it's such an amazing organisation. Like I remember coming across it when I was in training, and then just starting to look into it, and just being like, it's so great to have something like this within the arts to support artists to work more sustainably and and really have that more holistic focus and and really tackling all the areas that come under climate justice. And it's really, really such a crucial thing. And yeah, going back to the color green, I listened to the podcast episode um, where you were interviewed on it. And yeah, it was a really, really great episode. And something that I wanted to pick up on that you were talking about within that is the importance of dismantling gatekeeping. And I think that that's such an important thing. And we touched on it a little bit already. But I wanted to ask how you feel that the environmental and art space um, can help catalyze this dismantling of gatekeeping. I think there's amazing things that Julie's Bicycle are contributing to that. Um, But for people who maybe are just wanting to kind of think about those things. Big question. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Um, And I think it's not something that I think the environmental art sectors have been very good at necessarily up until now, personally. But I think that collaboration, um, really authentic collaboration is the key to that, you know, which isn't about sort of me going to someone and saying, like, this is what you should do. It's not arts organisations or environmental organisations going to, you know, community groups and saying, like, you need to care about climate change because people do. Um, And it's one of the things that I'm, honestly the most sick of saying is that (laughs) people do care about climate change but they care about it by way of the other things that are impacting their lives like 
you know, housing is a climate justice issue because it's all about the kind of space that we're allowed to inhabit. It's about land and who owns the land and how we access that. It's about how much we are able to access nature and therefore how connected we feel to wider environmental movements. So, you know, again, like wagging your finger at people isn't helpful, um, but, but co-creating, um, listening to people's voices and, um, and it not being about one, any one person, like really it's got to be collective and it's got to be, at this point, it's got to be really radical and it's got to um, center the people who are the most impacted. And it's, I think that there's something that we also often forget about this, is that people who have historically been erased or marginalized or, or, or you know, subject to violence in these spaces have the solutions already. No real deep, lasting radical change has happened without for example like a collective working class uh sort of response and and revolution uh, is the word I guess that's something that we see you know that's how we've got like weekends and uh, you know five-day work weeks and we need to remember that you know that that we have those strategies already in our communities um the thing that that I always say that I always talk about is the history of the even the word tree hugger, which was uh, which originated from from North India from like anti-colonial protest where um, where people would be chained to trees, and that is you know a strategy, a solution, a, a, a sort of a response that has already come from our community and has been sort of that whole history has been deliberately forgotten. And, um, you know, so those are all the things that, that have to be, that we have to be reminded of. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, yeah, I really, really appreciate it. And it's something that we all need to be hearing more and responding to. And yeah, very much recognizing that the people who have caused this aren't gonna be the people to solve it, you know? Um, and that's why it really comes back to what you're saying is is listening to those on the front lines right now, listening to those who have been marginalized, who are continuously being marginalized and really push for the systemic changes. And yeah, so thank you. You articulated that so beautifully. And yeah, I also wanted to mention as well, um, and I hope I'm right in saying this, is that would you consider you have a very kind of facilitative type role um, that you inhabit? And this is something that I also find I'm not particularly kind of a leadership extrovert kind of person in my own personality. Um, but I think that there can be such a strength in, in facilitation. And I was really interested to hear your perspective on this, on what you think the strengths of facilitation are to support the climate justice movement yeah um I think you're you're right I feel like that's very much my role and there's you know there's so many multiple ways of approaching these um and not everyone not everyone necessarily uh is able to participate or you know in physical protest or there isn't one way of doing activism and you know sometimes different kinds of activism work at different at different periods of, of time 
but you know I think that facilitating space is really important it's one of the things I do outside of Julie's Bicycle as well like I'm part of a collective called Diaspora Dialogues for the Future which is really about creating a space for people of colour basically to to sort of sit with all the grief and exhaustion and also joy and dreaming that is required for for climate action and at Julie's Bicycle as well you know quite often we especially for people who sit outside of, of that sort of that sort of formal or mainstream environmental discourse or or sort of um sector is if it's really isolating and um it can it can feel like you're doing a lot by yourself and especially like you know we are currently all by ourselves and sitting and staring at a screen all day it's really difficult to feel connected and I think that that's the role that facilitation um, and facilitative activism has to um has to take right now is keeping us connected keeping us hopeful um and giving us a space also to dream to breathe to talk about the world that we are moving towards rather than just sort of sitting with the the horror of the world that is yeah definitely because although it's important to be aware of the horrors if all we do is sit in the horrors that sense of overwhelm can prevent action from happening Mm -hmm. so yeah I think having that space opened up is just so essential and I'd love to follow on from what you were saying talking about dreams and hopes I'd love to hear what it is you're hopeful about for the future Oh, complete dismantling of all the terrible things that have led us here. No. <laughs> you know, I want a world where nature, where humanity is, is valued, where all humanity and all nature is equally valued. You know, where we can all breathe some clean air, where we all can eat some fresh food and know where it comes from and you know it sounds utopic and whatever but I you know I think what you see quite often from the people who like to call themselves the grown-ups is poo-pooing of this utopic ideal that we can't possibly do it we lived like that for tens of thousands of years why can't we do it And it's, you know, it's not that we have to all be cave people, you know, dying of a common cold, but we don't have to live in the way that we live now. And I think that the people who tell you that you can't really lack imagination. And if if we don't believe that we can, then what are we doing? Thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, I just have one final question for you, if that's okay. And it's a question that I always ask the guests that I have on the podcast. It's basically how you find your little bit of lagum. And lagum is a Swedish concept, which it basically translates to a little bit and not too much. So it's all about finding that balance. And it'd be super nice to hear how you find yours. I eat a lot. I love food. <laughs> um, I love gardening food. When I'm sad, I get my friends to text me pictures of their food. Um, <laughs> I, you know, over lockdown, I started like pickling and fermenting and brewing um, because it does require like a lot of patience. I'm like, I'm quite a chaotic person. I'm not good at, you know, measuring things. But I 
I love to watch something. You know, like I started brewing kombucha, which is a very hipster response. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, I just find it really amazing that this like weird snotty bacteria thing I don't know if you've ever seen what you ferment kombucha with it's disgustingly ugly but you know it makes something delicious and I spend like quite a lot of time doing that and yeah and gardening and and well I don't have a garden at the moment so uh I I send myself flowers every month and I literally spend a whole afternoon. I will spend three hours of my day arranging the flowers, like silently, like slowly cutting off the end of the stems, like trimming the leaves. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love that. I love that. (laughs) That's super nice. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah it's been so wonderful speaking with you and you've got such incredible perspectives to share and it's yeah it's been so lovely and yeah if anyone wants to find out more about either the work that you do or get in touch with Julie's Bicycle um, any of those things um, where can they go? They can go to juliesbicycle.com you can follow us on twitter on facebook on instagram where julie's bicycle on all of those things and um you can also sign up to our mailing list because uh we constantly have a whole bunch of events and um and things to participate in um so please do check that out amazing well thank you so much no problem it was a it was a real pleasure Thanks so much again to Farah for chatting with me and please be sure to check out the awesome work that she's doing both with Julie's Bicycle and Diaspora Dialogues for our futures. All of the links can be found in the blog post linked in the episode notes. If you found this episode insightful please do share with family and friends. If you'd like to get in touch with me to share any thoughts you've had on any of the episodes or to share some perspectives, ask any questions, you can find me on Instagram at a little bit of Largan, or you can email me on a little bit of Largan at gmail.com. It's super lovely to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and I'll speak to you again soon. Bye. <laughs>